When we stopped last week, the Israelites had just begun receiving manna from God to sustain them in the wilderness where there's no food. There's not enough food for them. And I think one hilarious thing is that when they saw manna for the first time, they said, what is that? And that became its name. Manna in Hebrew literally means what? (laughs) That cracks me up. So up until now, the stories in the Bible have been chronological, but we're to a point where the stories begin to run in parallel and there begin to be multiple accounts of the same stories in different books. And often one author fills in details that another author omitted. Genesis through the first half of Exodus are pretty much chronological standalone stories. We've just been following the storyline. But starting where we are now, there's a whole lot of overlap with Leviticus and Numbers. And then the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses' recap of what we just read in the previous two or three books, all the way back to Exodus. So from here on out, we're going to be doing all four of these books simultaneously. I'm going to start grouping the information from all of them by topic or by event. And if you flipped ahead or if you've, you know, tried to read the Bible uh, before now, this is, this is usually as far as anybody gets. When they start out, I'm going to read the Bible through this year, you know, they get to Leviticus and the wheels fall off the wagon. They just stop because Leviticus is nothing but a whole bunch of laws and rules. And, and I wanted to let you know not to worry about this. The, when we get when we do the laws, it's not going to be dry and boring. I promise. We're get, we're going to go at it from a completely different angle. Taken together, these first five books are a standalone set. They're called the Pentateuch, which means the five books, or the Torah, which means the teaching. Torah does not mean law. Erase that from your memory banks. So right off the bat, what I want you to do is put a bookmark here in Exodus and then flip forward to the next book, which is Numbers. Um, Numbers 33. I'm sorry, it's two books forward. Numbers uh, chapter 33. And I actually keep a marker in Numbers 33 while I follow the Israelites through the wilderness because it gives a list of their campsites in the desert. It doesn't always match up with the order of events in other places in these books, but I find Numbers 33 a very helpful chronological reference. And if you look at Numbers 33, about verse 9, you'll see that after they leave Elim, that's where that oasis was that had 12 springs and 70 date palms. They go and camp by the Reed Sea. Camping by the Reed Sea. Now, wait a minute. They left the Reed Sea behind like a long time ago when they walked through it, right? But remember, that was the story according to Exodus. Look back at verse 8 here in Numbers 33. In this version, The sea they passed through is not named. In Numbers, the Reed Sea isn't named until they camp by it here, where they are definitely almost to Mount Sinai. Interesting, huh? So they've 
got to be camped somewhere along that western branch of the Red Sea. And apparently this is what the author of Numbers calls the Reed Sea, not the sea they crossed when they first escaped from Egypt. And see that eastern finger of the Red Sea? That's what we call the Gulf of Aqaba nowadays. There's another place in the Bible that refers to that eastern finger as the Reed Sea. That's in 1 Kings 9.26. King Solomon also built ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Alath in Edom on the shore of the Reed Sea. Now you folks know where Edom is. It's over by the eastern tip of the Dead Sea in Canaan. So this reference to the Reed Sea is clearly to the body of water we call the Gulf of Aqaba. And there's no way the Israelites crossed the Gulf of Aqaba while they were escaping from Egypt. So I'm not telling you this to try to confuse you. I'm just pointing out that there's at least three biblical locations called the Reed Sea. These two that are here on this map, plus whatever it was they passed through when they left Egypt. And I just want you to get a sense of how loosely to hold these details. I want you to understand how the edges of the stories conflict. And it makes sense that they conflict. These stories are written down hundreds of years after the fact, and they've been passed down orally all during that time. And we can see quite clearly as we study that different people had heard different versions of the stories. The Bible does not have to be all tied up in a bow with all the discrepancies forced together and nailed shut in order for it to be the inspired word of God. The Holy Spirit is the living core of these stories. What the stories tell us about God is the inspired part. And this shines through without being diminished in any way by the different tellings of the stories. So when we study this, we're going to use all the stories together and try to, you know, use them to color and reference each other. So we get a, a, as well-rounded a picture of each event as we can. So here in Numbers 33, in verse 11, they leave the Reed Sea, which for this purpose is down here in near that left or left finger of the Red Sea, and they begin traveling inland through the desert of Sin, and then onward to a couple more campsites until in verse 14, they reach a place called Rephidim. Now we can flip back to Exodus 17 and see where the story picks up there. Exodus 17 tells us that by the time they get to Rephidim, they've run out of water again. And you guessed it, they're grumbling and murmuring and beginning to threaten Moses. Moses cries out to the Lord, what am I going to do with these people? They're about to stone me. And the Lord says, grab some of the elders to go with you, take your staff and go out a distance ahead of the people. I'll meet you at the rock of Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out for the people to drink. Now remember that Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai, and they haven't actually gotten all the way to Mount Sinai yet. They're close, but many scholars think Mount Horeb might be a different mountain. The Israelites are in a mountain range here, so it could be a nearby mountain. I personally agree with the scholars who think Mount Horeb and Mount Sinai are the same mountain, just different names used by different authors. 
And I think this fits better with the context of most of the stories in the Bible. So that's how I'm going to teach it. But just know they might be the same mountain, they might not be. Anyway, the Israelites' next stop is going to be Mount Sinai. So maybe the Rock of Horeb is just a very large rock in the vicinity. At any rate, Moses strikes the rock in front of the elders and water does gush forth for the people to drink. And Moses names the place Massah and Meribah, testing and quarreling. So why the word testing? Well, keep in mind the Israelites are getting manna rained down from heaven six days a week. And on the sixth day, they get double portions so they can rest on the seventh day. You'd think with these daily miracles, they wouldn't be complaining that they trust the Lord. But no. They're thirsty, they don't see any water, and instead of trusting the Lord, they turn on Moses. It's a case of saying, if the Lord is with us, then prove it. And that is called testing the Lord. It's a word used to determine the quality of a metal. For gold, that involves high temperatures. Testing is the word for assay. And when you say metal, you're trying to burn away what's not pure. You're trying to, or you're at least trying to determine how much purity and impurity there is in there. And can you see that it would be a problem to test God to determine his quality? How presumptuous of us. Testing the Lord is a concept we'll run across from here on out. It's telling the Lord you won't believe in him unless he coughs up a miracle or makes good on a promise right now. And it's a big deal to the Lord that we trust him, even when we ourselves cannot see how he's going to provide. And the Lord is not pleased when the Israelites put him to the test here. If you put it in the context of an intimate relationship, it would be like treating your partner like a prostitute where intimacy is transactional rather than an ongoing relationship of deep commitment, trust, and love. See the problem? The Lord doesn't want his relationship with us to be on the basis of what have you done for me lately? And keeping it transactional is also a power play. It's us trying to keep the power and control in the relationship for ourselves. We want to control what the Lord does and when he does it. Now flip forward to the next book, Deuteronomy 25, verse 17. The book of Deuteronomy is Moses speaking to the Israelites before he dies and reminding them of all that has happened to them and all that the Lord has done. So it's here where we find out what happens after they leave Massah and Meribah. Moses says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt? When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and cut off, meaning killed or captured, all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. Oh my, the Amalekites are about to attack the back end of this massive stream of Israelites. Think about who it is that would be straggling behind at this point. It would be the weak and the ill, the children and the elderly, and those who are helping them. These aren't the fighting men. 
These are the defenseless within the community of Israelites. And these are always, always the ones God has his eyes on. God cares about the ones who are slow and suffering. For the Amalekites to attack these in particular greatly angers God. Look what he says. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the promised land, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. God isn't going to stand for mistreatment of his people and especially not mistreatment of the vulnerable. He's going to execute the worst possible judgment on them. He's going to wipe them off the face of the earth. It's not going to happen here right now in the desert, but he says it will happen later when the Israelites are stronger and are in the promised land. The Amalekites are one of the oldest nations inhabiting Canaan. In fact, Numbers 2420 names them as first among the nations. They were mentioned way back in Genesis 14. Remember when Abram went to war to rescue Lot? They were mentioned there as one of the nations. They're nomads, but are found mostly in the Negev desert west of the Dead Sea, just west of where the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, live. There's even a passage in Genesis 36 that refers to one of Esau's grandsons being named Amalek. That may imply a treaty or an alliance between the Amalekites and the Edomites, since the Amalekites certainly existed long before Esau was born. It doesn't say why the Amalekites attack the Israelites as they approach Mount Sinai or what they're doing so far south in the Sinai Peninsula. But I suspect they heard stories of the riches the Israelites brought from Egypt and saw an opportunity for easy pickings. I think we've all, we tend to think of that Sinai Peninsula as being empty desert and that the Israelites were wandering around in empty desert. That is not the case. There are people here, mostly nomads, traders, um, people like the Midianites, the Amalekites, all these people that are wandering around on these trade routes. So the Israelites are running into people and other nations and other um, other cultures as they're as they're going. They're not wandering. They're on. They're following the pillar of cloud and the pillar of of, of light. So now flip back. Now that we know what's happened and what's what the Amalekites attacked, let's go back to Exodus 17 verse 8 and see what happens. When the Amalekites attacked, Moses pulls out his best young fighter, Joshua, and tells Joshua to gather some of the other fighting men to defend the people against the Amalekites. Moses will stand on top of a hill where he can see the battle and he'll hold the staff of God in his hands. As Joshua and his men fight the Amalekites, they prevail as long as Moses can hold up his hands. But Moses is over 80 years old now, and he tires. And when he drops his hands, the Amalekites prevail. So Aaron and Hur, who are on the hill with Moses, find him a stone to sit on, and they stand on either side of him and hold his hands up for him all day long until the sun goes down. And thus, Joshua defeats the Amalekites with the help of the Lord. And the Lord tells Moses that he will completely blot out Amalek from under heaven. And the Lord says, be sure to tell Joshua I said that and write it down. I will do this. 
This is one of a couple of places that refers to Moses writing all these adventures down. Part of the problem is he'd have had to find something to write on and to write with in that desert. But even if Moses didn't write all the stuff in all the books as we have them today, he still wrote something down and that undoubtedly formed the basis for these stories. In chapter 18, the Israelites finally reach Mount Sinai. And you know, that's close to where Moses used to live with the Midianites. That's where he used to shepherd his father-in-law's flocks. And sure enough, his father-in-law Jethro shows up with Zipporah and Moses' two sons in tow. This is where we find out that Moses had previously sent Zipporah away. That's typically the phrase used for divorce, and she never appears in the Bible after this. In fact, Numbers 12.1 tells us Moses later marries a Cushite woman, an African woman, and she ends up not getting along with Aaron and Miriam at all. So even though some scholars like to think Moses just sent Zipporah to her father for safety, I think that's flimsy. I think it's pretty clear that he's divorced her and sent her back to her father along with his two sons. So Jethro shows up and Moses is really glad to see him. They talk a long time and after hearing all the stories, Jethro says, wow, Yahweh really is greater than all these other gods. It doesn't say he became a monotheist. He's still a pagan priest. Even the Israelites aren't monotheists yet. But even Jethro can see the hand of God at work here. Jethro observes Moses, who spends the entire next day judging disputes among the people. The people stand in line all day long from morning till evening. And Jethro says, this is nuts, Moses. This is going to wear you and them both out. You need to set up a system with strong men of excellence positioned as leaders of the people. Set up hierarchies organized in groups of tens, fifties, hundreds, and a thousands with men in charge of each level. Let them judge these smaller disputes and you only judge the matters that have to get escalated to you. Well, that was wise advice and that's exactly what Moses does. I point this out because people tend to fall into the same trap Moses did, of feeling like if you rely on the Lord to guide you, then you can turn your brain off and the Lord will guide every little step. That's not how it works. You absolutely must rely on the Lord to guide you, but you also need to put to full use your own God-given talents, your experience and knowledge and the wisdom and guidance and help of those around you. Our relationship with God was always meant to include those beside us. When we think as a leader that we're the only one who can hear the Lord, we're already running off the rails. And now we're to chapter 19. The Israelites are at Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, the place where this whole adventure started for Moses. Remember what God told Moses back at the burning bush in Exodus 3, verse 12? After Moses tried so hard to get out of having to rescue, rescue the Israelites, God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship me on this mountain. What emotions must Moses be feeling now 
after everything that has happened. Now he will worship God on this very mountain. This is the sign promised to Moses. So he'll finally know that God has called him. He's come full circle from that burning bush. He's standing in the same place. It was God in the burning bush. It was God doing all those miracles in Egypt and all these miracles every single day since they've left Egypt. Those were all signs, surely. But there's something in particular about what's about to happen on this mountain that is foundational to Moses' own relationship with God. Moses goes alone up on the mountain and God meets him there. And God says, remind the people of all they have seen, of all the things I've done for them these past three months. Remind them how tenderly I've borne them and brought them to myself. Your Bible may say something like this next. Tell them to obey me fully and keep my covenant. And that is a faithful translation. But those words, obey and covenant, have a lot of baggage hanging on them if you're a lifelong Christian. And they can just as faithfully be translated, tell them to listen to me and keep guard or watch our alliance. It's saying, listen to me and be my fully committed partner. This is also a faithful translation of the Hebrew. See what a difference it can make to choose words without all the baggage. God wants us to listen to him and partner with him. This is the essence of our relationship with God. It's a relationship that is alive and two-way. We're allies, committed partners, speaking and listening together. We ourselves learn from God, and the Israelites are being invited into this kind of walk with God, where God teaches them how to live life with joy and abundance. He's going to show them how to keep from hurting each other. He's going to teach them how to stay safe and healthy, and God's going to be there every step of the way. Doesn't that sound wonderful? God continues. Tell them that if they will listen to me and are my partner, my covenanted people, then out of all the nations, they will be my treasured people. Although the whole earth belongs to me, you will be special, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Wow, what an offer. What a proposal. What will the people say, though? Remember, they're like an abused partner. And what often happens after an abused spouse is rescued, what, what happens when they enter another relationship? So often, their new partner is an even worse abuser. We seem to gravitate towards the familiar role, even knowing how destructive it is. Are the people even capable of trusting God at this point? Only three short months since their rescue. Or will they be afraid and suspicious of this unfamiliar, tender, loving treatment? Is their self-esteem so low that they cannot believe God's offer? When Moses goes back down the mountain, the people say, yes, we'll do it. We will listen to the Lord and be his partner. 
priests in the world, his treasured people. We will do what the Lord does. We will do what the Lord teaches us to do. So Moses goes back up the mountain. And there God says, all right then, go tell the people to consecrate themselves the next two days. And on the third day, I will come to you in the cloud. And the people themselves will be able to hear me when I speak to them. And ever after that, there will be no question. Both you and they will trust me forevermore. So what does it mean to consecrate themselves? How would they even know what to do? We even completely misunderstand that word. We think it means to make something holy. But that's just one of the possible results of consecration. Consecration actually means to set something apart for a particular purpose. It's often translated as dedicate, to dedicate something for a particular purpose. Most often in the Bible and in common usage, it means to set something apart for a holy purpose, but it can also mean to set something apart for an unholy purpose. Here's an example of a place in the Bible where the very same word is translated quite differently. Do not plant two kinds of seeds in your vineyard. If you do, not only the crops you plant, but also the fruit of the vineyard will be defiled. That word defiled is this very word consecrated. The purpose can be good or bad. The word itself simply means set apart. Isn't that interesting? That's what the Lord is doing with the Israelites. He's setting them apart for a particular purpose. And the stated purpose is the exact same purpose he told Abram all those hundreds of years before. Remember Genesis 12, 2? It's the very first thing the Lord says to Abram in the Bible. And what he says is that he and his descendants will be blessed and will be a blessing to the whole world. And now it's finally happening. God is setting the Israelites apart to be especially blessed. But he's also setting them apart to be a blessing. Think about that. God's stated and consistent purpose all the way through, thus far anyway, is that he wants to bless all people. All. And now, here in Exodus 19, we find out that the way he's going to do it is to shower blessings on the Israelites and make them into a nation of priests. What exactly is a priest called to do? Well, you have to be a priest of something, right? In this case, they'll be priests of God to the whole world. A priest is called to connect. In this case, to connect people with God. They're to draw the people of the world close to God. They're to learn God's ways and then show God's ways to the world. And all of this is for the sole purpose of blessing the people of the world, all of them. So what do the Israelites have to do to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart, to ready themselves to meet God on the third day? This sounds pretty important. Do they need to fast, pray, do elaborate rituals? Nope, they're to do the laundry. Really, God just says, tell them to wash their clothes. Moses also tells them to abstain from sex. That last bit appears to have been added by Moses. It's not recorded as words the Lord himself said. God just said, wash your clothes. 
God doesn't ever ask for elaborate, difficult stuff. He enters into our lives in the ordinary. Preparing oneself to meet with God is as simple as doing the laundry and putting on a clean garment. Our act is obviously ineffective at making us any holier or purer than we were before. It's God alone who actually consecrates us, who sets us apart for his purpose. All we have to do is whatever small symbolic act, whatever first step God asks of us. And so the people do laundry. On the third day, they dress in their clean clothes and gather at the mountain. Moses warns them, do not touch the mountain. Do not try to go up on the mountain. Anyone or anything, human or animal, that touches the mountain must die. Wait, what? Yeah, God is very specific that whoever touches the mountain must die by being stoned or shot. In, in those days, you'd shoot him with an arrow. So why? Well, we have to put together several verses in this passage to get a clearer picture. We already know that just seeing the Lord will kill us. He is that holy and that much power is in his face and his physical presence. Our human frame cannot bear it. There's a few more specifics in verse 21. It tells us that the Lord says for Moses to warn the people not to try to force their way up the mountain in order to see the Lord. Uh, that makes sense. It makes sense that when the people realize they can hear the actual voice of the Lord coming from the cloud, that they'll naturally want to see the Lord too, and that would kill them. The next verses, 23 and 24, say that the priests also must consecrate themselves and must not go up on the mountain with Moses and Aaron, lest the Lord burst forth against them. That phrase about the Lord bursting forth immediately brings to my mind the visual of electricity arcing. Our own power transformers give us a good model for this. Just getting too close to them can cause arcing from the transformer to our bodies. God's physical presence must be just like that. We are lightning rods for God's power. That is a remarkable and wonderful thing, but it's also dangerous. We are only human. And God is quite painfully aware of our physical limitations. He's setting this boundary around the mountain to protect his people, not to be punitive or harsh with them. So why would anyone who touches the mountain but doesn't get all the way up to where they can see God need to be stoned or shot? It doesn't say, but I can think of a couple of reasons. For one thing, I'm wondering if by coming so close to God, they would create a sort of physical chain where the arcing of God's power might skip down from them to strike the people, not to mention Moses and Aaron. It would be literally life or death for them and the entire group to prevent any man or animal from reaching where God is. But the people can't physically go up to restrain a man or an animal who's trying to force their way through. So the only way would be by preventing them from a distance, by throwing stones or shooting arrows. That makes sense to me. You may be able to come up with other reasons. I think God made it very clear to Moses and Aaron how far they themselves could safely come up the mountain. 
Another odd thing in this passage is that it refers to the priests as well as the people. Think about that. There aren't actually any priests in Israel yet. God is about to tell them how to ordain priests and how to set aside priests for service. And yes, God's going to make the Israelites a nation of priests to the world. And he's going to set aside Aaron's descendants as priests within the community of Israelites. But none of that has happened yet. The people know nothing about this yet. There are no priests yet. Not in Israel. This is another way we know that this account was written later by someone who knew the end of the story, someone who knew there would be priests and what their function would eventually be. Interesting, huh? So on the third day, the people put on their clean garments and gather at the boundaries that Moses sets up around the mountain, taking care not to get any closer. As the sun comes up, the cloud of the Lord descends on the mountain. There's tremendous thunder and lightning, and the entire mountain begins to burn and smoke. The mountain itself shakes as a ram's horn begins to blow. As the ram's horn becomes louder and louder, Moses begins to speak to the Lord, and all the people hear the Lord answer him. Chapter 20, verse 18 tells us this scares the people to death. They tell Moses, make God stop speaking this way. Make him speak to you only. And then you speak to us because we cannot bear hearing his voice. We will die if we keep hearing God speak. And Moses says, don't be scared. Don't be scared. God is doing this to test you. Remember that word means to determine the quality of a metal. God is putting a little pressure on the people to test them. And it's not that God needs to know. God knows their hearts. But the people need to take some more baby steps of their own towards the Lord, towards committing to being his people, steps towards demonstrating for themselves that they trust God implicitly. They need to be willing to let go of what is worthless, like trusting in their own strength or despairing when they see things are hopeless, that's hard to give up. So how will all this scary flashbang accomplish this? Well, Moses tells them it will create an abiding sense of awe in them that will stay in front of their faces. Your Bible may say it's so they won't sin, but that word sin means to go off the path, to miss the mark. God is building vivid, deep, lasting memories that will help them stand fast in coming times of adversity. He's building memories they can see and hear and feel and smell. These memories will remind them he is real and he is present and they can trust him to defend them when they are in danger or afraid. These memories will give them courage when they want to turn and run. After that, the Lord himself comes down to the very top of the mountain and calls Moses up to him. It said earlier that Aaron's supposed to go with him. We don't have any record of whether Aaron did that or not. I hope so, but it doesn't say. And we'll stop here for today because the conversation that Moses and God have up on top of that mountain will change the world. In our breakout sessions today, we're going to talk about that new term, consecrate and what it means to be set apart. All right, looks like we're 
mostly back. Um, there's a small enough group today. Feel free to turn your mics on um, so we can just talk uh, freely among ourselves and tell me what it what came out of your discussion. I'm interested to hear. In the first question, we were talking. I'm going to talks about you know what purpose did the washing of clothes serve, um, or would some other action serve a similar purpose? And we were talking about the fact that that being that these were cultures in a desert environment, washing your clothes and bathing would not have been a daily common occurrence, and so it would indicate the preparation for something significant. Um, and that probably some other action would have served a similar purpose, but this would have been a familiar thing that they would understand without a lot of education. Interesting. We, we linked, we also likened that to, you know, past when we were kids, how people would have baths on Saturday night because Sunday morning you go to church. You might not have a bath the rest of the week, but you have one on Saturday night. Um, and we also wondered about, because a lot of religions have a prayer confession before you have the Lord's Supper, if, isn't that kind of the same thing as taking your bath before you take the, you know, commune with God? Yeah, very, very interesting connection. Also, um, I think it was Renee said, uh, been, I don't know, one of, one of the ladies said, um, <laughs> that it was an outward sign of cleansing and purification of the inside. It was an outward sign of that. And um, we likened it unto baptism that, you know, this was a showing of the purification, whereas baptism is also a showing of our purification. So very interesting. What else did you come up you, Barb, who said that? Yes. yes, but that's okay. Well, I don't mind. Yeah. I don't. I don't care. <laughs> kind of both, everybody kind of added to that whole. Yes, then yeah. it went on from there. Yes, yeah. we snowballed that one. <laughs> yes, we did, and all of a sudden we went, "Oh, we better move on." <laughs> so, what did what did you you guys see um, in terms of the fact? I mean, the whole reason we're studying this right is because it's supposed to have an impact on our lives as we are right now and the reason that all this history about israel and god's relationship with the hebrew people is because in the new testament we get grafted in they're the you know they're 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 that same vine they're attached to the same vine the spirit of god that we are and we get grafted in so so this all applies to us and i gave you a couple of couple of verses in there that were quite pointed about saying that but you get that flavor from all over the new testament mm -hmm. and from how jesus talked and stuff so what <clears throat> What does it mean? There's two things. There were two things I asked you. Number one, what does it mean to be called to be priests ourselves, to be blessed and to be a blessing ourselves? And what does it mean to be set apart ourselves, consecrated ourselves? What did y'all come up with there? I didn't get that far. <laughs> um. Well, feel free to throw out some new thoughts then. <laughs> Any of you other ladies want to tell them what we came up with? I don't want to step on toes. 
we talked a little bit about how as Christians being called to be priests and to bless and to be a blessing doesn't necessarily mean it means we're called to proselytize but not necessarily to thump a Bible on someone but rather to through our actions and through our attitude graciously help and be a blessing to people and people in need of all types so that they would see God in us and open that opportunity. That makes sense. For folks who might not be familiar with the word proselytize, that's a big word, but um, it, it basically is talking about the idea that Christians feel like they need to be overt in terms of speaking the good news to people so they can be saved. And, um, and so my question here might be, can we be blessed and be a blessing without proselytizing? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Easy. So I think that's one of the things we should be is proselytizing to me seems to turn people off because mm -hmm. it's like you're saying I have the answers you don't have the answers and my answers are right and yours are wrong yep. and I don't think God ever meant for his love to be shown as something that a few select people had the right answer and then everybody else's answer was wrong and Shirley, I thought of that when you were talking about baths on Sunday night and getting dressed and how people don't get dressed and to go to church fancy anymore. I wonder if that has fallen out of fashion because people use that to say, oh, that, you know, afterwards, right. oh, that person went to church because they're all dressed up and they're better than I am. And it put people off going to church. That's possible. So I wonder if that's why it kind of fell out of fashion. Well, also um, because people felt like they couldn't go to church if they didn't have clean clothes to wear and right. stuff like that. I remember yeah. those days. Yeah. So we also said that um, the fact that we're a priest, that we're called to share Christ, we're share, mm -hmm. to share God's love. Um, but we're, we talked about the fact that it's, um, a, a priest is someone who represents before God. Yes. And we are a priest so we are able to represent ourselves before god we don't have to go through another person another priest to get to god um we can represent ourselves before god but we can also represent others before god and we can bring others to god and pray for them and you know we can so that our responsibility as a priest is to represent before god and and when you break down that when you break down that word represent it's also represent so as quote priests we can represent god's love to others what is isn't there a, a verse in the bible that says you're supposed to be in the world not of the world yes and I would say that's how we could be set apart is that, you know, we're, we're in the world, but we're, we're living the word of God and we're not necessarily falling prey 
to all of the fashions and other God things like money and, and um, oh, just other prestigious positions that may, may, we might want to have. And I think it was St. Francis who said, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. <laughs> One of the things we said in our group was that our life should reflect who we are in Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the same thing that you're saying. We all wrote that quote down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I, I would like to, you know, I, unfortunately we're over time already and that's my fault again, because the lesson ran a little long. Some, some lessons just don't fit in 30 minutes. So, um, <laughs> that's okay. But I did want to, um, and we can continue talking if you wish, but, but I did want to, uh, pull out something here um, that I think does cause Christianity to go off the rails. And that is that we, number one, we have been taught to proselytize in a very overt way. And I agree with all the discussion here that we need to be more than we need to speak, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just like you do with kids, right? <laughs> and mm -hmm. And, um, and the other thing is touching on the point that Shirley made that when we, when we see ourselves as priests as, a, and even more so when we use words like Kings and rule and those kinds of words, um, it is so easy to run off the rails there, uh, in terms of understanding what our role is and I want to address that because I tend to try to avoid um, king rule that kind of language not because it's not true but because it is completely been way blown out of proportion and way overdone within Christianity and it's and it's not right I mean the way we've applied it is not right so here's my take on what it means to be a priest and it has to do with what I learned about Moses, because in the Bible, um, in the New Testament, actually, there's a verse that says that Moses was the most humble man that ever lived. Now, think about that. Moses. This is Moses, the leader. Moses out there beating the rocks. Moses holding up his staff. Moses, you know, in talking to God himself. And... Right. And the, the fact that he was, what, what was most important about him was his humility. The, the word sometimes is translated as meek. He was meek. Now Moses was not by any stretch of the imagination a doormat. Mm -hmm. Right? So there's something about the, something about the ability to be a mighty prophet a mighty warrior, a mighty leader, a powerful, powerful man operating in power that is cognate, meaning the same as being meek and humble. And the image to me that, that helps me through understanding that is of a roll of toilet paper, an empty one, the cardboard tube. And the cardboard tube, if you hold, if you roll it up and hold it like this, I'm going to 
roll up a little piece of paper here. If you roll it up and hold it like this, you see that cardboard tube. This is how most of us see a leader, a powerful person. But when you're operating in the way God intends us to operate, you look at it like this. Mm. <laughs> and mm. the person is self-effaced. Anybody who has had a baby understands that concept, right? <laughs> of being <laughs> effaced. <laughs> Of being thinned, okay? It's being thinned so that all you are is a conduit. All you are is pointing the people in the direction of God and letting God do the talking, all right? It is a way of power flow. And if you know about hydro, hydro, the water, whatever that word is, you know, about how water works. When you narrow a flow of water through a narrow opening, it becomes more powerful. Mm-hmm. That's what makes those rapids, okay? The rapids occur in a stream where the mountains come closer together. Okay? Hydraulic. That's mm-hmm. it. And, and, uh, <laughs> and so what I'm saying is Moses had learned not to be this in between God and the people. Moses had learned to be this between God and the people. To the extent we can disappear between God and the people. To the extent we can simply point them towards God, connect them with God, get ourselves out of the way, then we have been priests. Does that make sense? That's good. That's cool. Yeah. All right. So that's it for the class class today. I'm glad to, to talk some more, but we're done. I remembered the thing I wanted to tell you. Oh, good. Um, it would have been about four weeks ago, because I think school where my daughter has been having to go to work has been open for about three weeks now might have been three weeks ago because I can't remember if they've been in there two or three weeks but um we were doing Joseph and we were talking about forgiveness and uh, reconciliation Mm -hmm. and my daughter was still home she wasn't hadn't gone to work yet because the next week was when their school started and so Tuesday she said to me Mom, what was that stuff y'all were talking about the other day in your Bible study about Joseph? And I went, um, okay, which things about Joseph? And she goes, well, it was something about forgiveness and something else. And I said, oh, oh, forgiveness and reconciliation. She goes, yes, that's it. So we talked a little bit. So she leads a Bible study on Tuesday nights. And she had been doing some studying and stuff. And um, so I'm in my bedroom and she's sitting where I'm sitting right now. Um, on the same computer, um, doing her, leading her Bible study. And I hear her say, well, you know, there was two aspects of this. Um, Joseph had to forgive. And then there was also the reconciliation. And she talked about the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. And she had looked up some quotes from different scholars and stuff and put them in there and stuff. 
but I'm sitting in there thinking, I have got to tell Gail that her Bible study is making an impact, not just on those in the Bible study, but on maybe those who may just happen to be in the room and hearing the Bible study. Eavesdropping. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. I just thought that was pretty cool. That is very is. cool. And, it's and I'm so glad I remembered to tell you. It's very Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing cool. that. That was great. Thanks, it has Shelley. a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. Yes, it does. And I think that's all great. of us have that ripple effect. I hope. Yeah, they do. That's, that's part right. of being. That's part of being a priest. Uh, the, part of the priesthood of all believers. That's mm -hmm. exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I've been sharing stuff from the Bible study with my family. Um, we've been having some really great conversations coming out of the stuff that we're talking about in the Bible study, um, especially when my daughter Sonia is over because she's in seminary right now. And so she can then, and, and last year they focused on Hebrew and Old Testament studies. And this year she's starting off with Greek and, and we'll be doing more in New Testament studies. But um, yeah, we, we've had some great conversations. It's been really terrific. How fun. How fun. Mm -hmm. That is exciting. And I'm, and you know, being able to have it out on the video and the study guides and stuff, I had someone write me this week and say, I'm so far behind. How long is it going to be up? You know, and I said, well, as, as long as I can afford the, the fees for the website, it's going to be up. You know, this is, it, it's expensive. The, the, that kind of stuff's expensive. Just the, can we um, help with that? I gladly accept help. Bible studies don't qualify as 501c3 organizations, so any money that's given is is not deductible. But on my website at eversbibleclass.com is at the bottom of the page is a place to donate. Like just oh, cool. the, I try to get as much of the uh, as many of the images and stuff as I can for free. You'll see me put credits down there where they're required. Um, but a lot of what I get is not free. I mean, that one base package that I had to buy to give you the actual pictures of the holy, yeah. like those real places, that cost $600. Oh and my gosh. The website, I got like 40% off for three years, you know, and still it was $300 you know, just wow. to, because I had to update a bunch of stuff. And it's just, it's the, the research materials are sky high. You'd think it was women's underwear, but. So any, any help you can give me, I would greatly appreciate, but it's not necessary. You know, the Lord is going to provide for this. I, this is, uh, this is something whenever I look for um, images, of course, I don't need as many images as you do, obviously, but whenever I'm looking for images for something, I always put in public domain to make sure I get the free stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, I, and I do yeah. go to all the various, you know, there wiki commons and, and uh, there's lots of free things like the maps that I give you, the topographical maps, not the ones I draw, which are, pathetic but the but the real ones where where i can draw on them and stuff those i had to buy you know that access to have to have those and get special permission to do what i need to do with it and, and they were so gracious so do pay attention to those 
little links that I put at the bottom of where I get stuff because those folks have been great. I need to go too. Gail, I just got to tell you, after my Wednesday meetings, oh yeah, yeah, which are so intense, <laughs> sometimes they're better than others, this is such a welcome study, you know, which just fills my soul. So I really appreciate that. Oh, That's I'm cool. very glad. It fills my soul too. This is this is just wonderful. This you is where I such a, you do such a wonderful job, you know, mm -hmm. of of storytelling and stuff that makes you feel like you're there. Well, you and know, know in, in our Sunday school class before you've done that, and it's always draws people in. Well, I the so. Lord must have, you know giving you guys these words because I've been kind of discouraged feeling like, gosh, nobody wants to hear this. I'm going too slow. And the Lord oh, said, just oh. do it at the right, at the oh. rate that it feels right. Don't rush. If you're not doing it and there's nobody on the other side, it's okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, know, going, I know at least yeah. three, three people who are watching the videos because they can't sit in on Thursday morning, but they, they, keep coming back to me and saying, this is so good. She is such a great teacher. This is really wonderful. Oh, good. I, will watch, the, I watch the videos, even though I participate <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> on Thursdays. I watch the videos because it's amazing. I'll listen and say, oh my gosh, I remember hearing that. <laughs> That's true. So well, I watched you. one from last week when I missed Gale. So. Oh, did you? Good. Well, yeah, I, I did. Because I, truly, I feel like if I'm not keeping up, then I'm going to miss something and not make a connection. Well, and you will, yeah. because this is, I'm being really careful about the threads that I'm yeah. pulling forward because we're going to need them later, you know? Um, and so yeah. uh, it's not that you couldn't miss a lesson and be okay, but to get the most out of it, you know, yeah. it's helpful to do it all. It's yeah. that math sense, everything builds on that for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Just, just the fact just the fact that you did this deuteronomy thing where you connected the two stories together i mean you know it would have no, i would have never occurred to me to do that and i'm just so grateful that you did it for me so <laughs> thank you thank you uh, bye everyone bye encouragement i appreciate it so much Bye. Oh, sure. Yeah. All right.